You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of Currency Cloud's Payments Innovation Podcast. I'm your host for today, James Tiadorini, and today I'm with Vivi Friedgut, uh, founder, CEO of Black Bullion, author as well. Uh, See, good prop here, Vivi, right? Nice. Uh, Stay financially healthy uh, while you study. Welcome, Vivi. Thank you so much for having me and for, you know, getting the book. (laughs) No problems at all. So, um, you know, before we know each other, we we go way back. Um, But for our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about Black Bullion, um, and we can go from there. Sure. So I'll do the the short version because the long version will take far too long. Uh, So so Black Bullion is a financial well-being company um, with the kind of the the mission of helping young people to really get to grips with their money and make not necessarily just smarter, but also more thoughtful decisions in what is ultimately a, a changing and challenging financial landscape. One thing we've seen through COVID is how precarious people's finances actually are. But all that COVID's done is like shine a spotlight on this issue that's been around for a long time. So I, I tend to steer away from the fact that I'm passionate about financial education because actually, as you know, I think it's more of an obsession, <laughs> yeah. not necessarily healthy. Um, but I've long believed that that money is about um, opportunity and about choice and about the power over your own life. And about seven years ago, I set up Black Bullion with the ambition of, of bringing that to people. I come from a wealth management background and help rich people get richer. And one of the reasons that rich people get richer is they have a lot of advisors around them because they have the money to pay experts to help them to you know, make the most of their tax affairs and save efficiently and invest efficiently. And kind of average Joe, if we're still allowed to use that expression, um, doesn't have any of that. And we assume that people understand how to use their money, but we've never taught people how. It's not really taught in schools, despite parliamentary group kind of campaigning for it and it officially being part of the, uh, the curriculum. It's not really done in most schools. Young people are graduating with enormous amounts of debt. The job market is precarious. The future of work is precarious. And so really, I set up Black Bullion with the hope of helping people set up slightly more solid financial foundations so that we can shift the trajectory of their life. So that's kind of the shortest version I can, I can possibly give of, of the reason I set up um, the reason I set up Black Bullion. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an obsession. Like this is a problem we have to solve, and I believe that we can. So that's what I do. As an obsession to have, it's an amazing one, right? Because if we get this right, we'll we'll change the world for a lot of people. So, and I know that we've kind of swapped war stories in the past, particularly of kind of our uh, personal financial trials and tribulations as youngsters or at university. You know, I've told you my stories of getting handed twenty pounds in a brown envelope by my uni hardship fund, but. Um, some people won't have had experience of that. And as you say, right, it's something that we don't really shine a light on or probably isn't shone a lot on. And people like you are shining that light right now. But could you talk us through a little bit of the history or the, the past of kind of financial well-being for people who are younger but or, or maybe specifically in, in financial education, I suppose? Also, what effect that has on people as they're going through that period of their lives? Yeah, so the, the history of financial education is is quite new. When I started the business, um, financial education didn't exist as, like, there, it, there was no lexicon for it. Financial literacy was discussed a lot in the United States because the U.S. has got 
what can only be described as kind of catastrophic criminal levels of student debt. I mean, we could talk 10 hours just about just how, well, criminal, really, I believe that that system is. But when I started Black Bullion, the US's total student debt was at a trillion dollars, um, a trillion dollars. I mean, that's, you know, that's a huge amount of money. Um, it is now 1.7 trillion as of a few days ago. So it is ramping up at just the most insane rate. But because the UK actually has a pretty good sort of uh, student loan system, we can, we can kind of get into that, but it's certainly a lot less um, it's a lot less commercial than the U.S. rate, which is why it's a very mm. different system. Um, but but financial education, financial literacy just wasn't really a topic. So it was something that was discussed through a variety of charities. Obviously, Martin Lewis has been talking about it for a long time, but it was very much about getting financial education into schools so that we can teach kids young about money. And that was the full breadth of kind of the ambition which is you know fantastic and amazing and I wouldn't want to sound like I'm you know like I'm bringing it down I think it's amazing but financial education actually isn't for school it's for life as you said as you and I have discussed so when you're a kid actually the ability to get into catastrophic financial trouble is pretty limited like Hmm. you don't have you know you don't really have access to the things that make it catastrophic and as you get older and you have access to credit to debt to cryptocurrency to online trading platforms, you know, organizations like Robinhood that have used the best of technology gamification um, to gamify effectively losing money. I mean, it's, it's, mm. it, we call it democratizing finance, but actually we're giving people the tools without the knowledge to put money into the markets and put money into crypto. I mean, crypto is down six and a half percent today. So, mm. so the, the problem has long been there, but the, the level of problem has not existed in the same way as today. And that's technology enabled. And I believe on the flip side, technology can enable the solution as well as enabling a lot of the problems. So this has been around for a very long time, but the idea of financial well-being, which is very much how we refer to it, is only a few years old. And the tie-up with mental health is a brand new kind of school of discussion. So it's an old problem, but it's only recently been given new language. And that's a really interesting point between the old and the new and, and kind of what you can do now and what that enables on on both sides right on the positives and the negatives you know again when when i was at university i'm not going to say how long ago you know i couldn't access my finances on my phone let alone spend them on my phone to to a certain extent because i'm not sure my nokia 3310 could go on and a nascent amazon at that point um but talk talk to us a little bit about the landscape now and obviously please feel free to, to talk about black bullion in this because as you say there's you know, the world of fintech and technology helping and enabling students to, to manage their finances, which I know is a huge passion and, as mm. you say, an obsession of yours and, and Black yeah. Billions. But then there's also the flip side. Would, and I guess within this, would you say that overall financial well-being has improved? You know, because, again, we're talking about two different things here, but maybe the two are very linked. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So has financial well-being improved? Absolutely for the people that weren't in trouble to begin with. So COVID has been a net positive for people who were financially stable before. So speaking for myself, I mean, I earn, you know, a quarter of what I earned when I was in banking. Um, 
But nonetheless, you know, I own my own home. I've been able to pay down debt. I've been able to save. I've been able to invest because I haven't been going on holidays. I haven't been eating out. I haven't been going out with friends. And so a lot of that disposable kind of income that was going towards luxuries has now been redirected into savings and debt. And so my financial well-being and my financial stability is, a, is an awful lot better than it was because I've been forced into, and, and so have a lot of people, um, I think it's 900 million pounds worth of enforced savings across the country. Like that's a huge amount of money. Having said that, I'm in a, you know, I'm in quite a privileged position where I am, you know, a white collar, well-paid kind of tech founder. Um, a lot of people on, you know, more restricted hours on zero hours contracts, if your finances were already precarious, um, then actually you're much more on a downward slope. And this has given rise to this discussion around what's known as the K-shaped economy. So, you know, we, we have all sorts of types of recessions. You have your double dip recession, your U-shaped we're not very creative as economists. I'm economist trade, and we're not we're not particularly creative. So you know, it's literally what the what the letter looks like. But a K-shaped economy is one in which the economy actually splits in two, and not necessarily evenly. Where some people are on an upward trajectory because they have been saving more, paying down debt, are actually coming out of COVID in a better position, have worked from home, and then you've got people who came into COVID maybe not in a great situation, who are now finding themselves in in kind of financial despair, and that's in a sense, why we're not all in it together um, with COVID. We, re we really haven't been. Where I believe technology can play an enormous role is, first of all, it is in everyone's pocket. I mean, I also had a Nokia, what was it, the 6210? It was like the greatest, oh, greatest phone. Great phone. And, and you could play Snake, which you now can't get on any phone, which is which is just devastating. Um, but, but technology is the great enabler on both sides. So as you said, you know, if you wanted to, you know, I always use gambling as an example. If you wanted to gamble, you had to go into like a betting shop and there was, you know, creepy old people in there and there were guys at the front, you know, having a fag. And were you really going to go in there and kind of put down your 20 quid on a horse? Like you would think twice about it. Whereas now, and especially during lockdown, it's all on your phone, in your pocket all the time. And there's no shame or stigma around it, which is good because there is too much stigma and shame around money. But we've completely lost any sense of perspective with a lot of these apps. And I do think that that is that can be very dangerous when you've got a lot of time, you've got your maintenance loan in your pocket because it's just landed and it's three months worth of money and you don't really know how to budget or you think you can, you know, make a quick, you know, make a quick buck, which is really what's happening with crypto. Um, so I think technology can can also be the the elixir that can solve it because it's in your pockets designed to be gamified. And that's what Black Bullion is all about. What education, I think, is not doing well enough as a sector is utilizing the best of technology. And, you know, the world has become digitized incredibly fast. And education up until COVID was 3% digital, which is insane. Um, so bringing the best of fintech technology into the education sector to, you know, speed up speed up back office and speed up payments and students say to us you know i can get a payday loan in five minutes but to get my students um emergency funding or hardship funding can take six to eight weeks i mean that's today that's just in like it's just insane it, it beggars belief and so why not use technology where can technology can do the most good so that staff can attend to young people's mental health and when they need more help and they need more support let the technology do the heavy lifting and that's very much what we're trying to do at black bullion is merge the education component with the best of technology to to create an experience that is much more 21st century and modern for these students i mean and that's incredible right because as you say there, there's that 
quite staggering and beyond belief system that still exists within higher education as, as an example, which I know you're tackling of, you know, written forms that are being stamped by Ethel in accounting and then put in an envelope and taken to Doris in fine. I feel bad for Ethel's and Doris's all over the place here, but you know, it, I think you've probably spoken to some real, life, real life Ethel's life. and Absolutely. But how much of this do you feel? Because we talked a little bit here about, and I've seen it, right? I, I still was talking to someone who they lost their maintenance loan gambling on an African Cup of Nations game because it was there and it was yeah. on their in their pocket and they thought they could make 50 quid for a night out by putting their maintenance loan on a sure thing. And it, you know, obviously a sure thing turns out it's yeah. never going to be a sure thing. Where do you think the split between, and this is maybe a deep philosophical question, um, personal responsibility ends and education and potentially sometimes predatory activities of, of you know, firms in some of those sectors um, begins. Where does that split and, and where do you see that going? Um, in the future. Yeah, so it won't surprise you that I believe in personal responsibility, partly because I also think it gives people power if they feel they have agency over their life. I think there's nothing less empowering to somebody than telling them how to live their life. And at the end of the day, we have to remember that that students are just young adults. They, they, you know, mm -hmm. they, I mean, my mum often jokes that, you know, when she was 22, she'd already had me. I mean, you know, so the idea that a 22-year-old is a child is, I think, a little bit, a little bit offensive to, you know, to, to young people. But if you don't give people the tools, then you can't really be surprised when they don't know how to deal with it. So if we're educating, if we're giving students money, we need to educate them how to use that money. Once that's done, then you have a responsibility to use that money in the best possible way. And then it becomes about personal choice. But if I gave you, you know, I don't know, like a new piece of kit and I don't tell you what to do with it and there's no instructions, can't really be surprised when the person breaks it. So we have to balance the two things out. What, what we are doing is at the same time as infantilizing people when it comes to their money by telling them that they'll never understand it and it's super complicated. And, you know, regulation, you know, some of the pages of regulation, I mean, they're like 60, 70 pages long, and yet we're giving students like 60 grand without them understanding what that means. And, and it's even worse in the US where, you know, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, but people don't understand the consequences of that. And that's, that, that's why I use the word criminal because, to a certain degree, we're setting people up for financial disaster. I mean, America has, and America is much worse than, than the UK in this, but because our, our debt obviously is discharged over a period. But in the US, there are countless, like, like hundreds of thousands of people in their 40s and 50s who are still paying off student loans and they've still got $70,000, $80,000 worth. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So again, if we help educate people and we give them choices, we give them options and we give them power over their money. and you and I have discussed, my belief about money is that it's not about buying stuff. I mean, it's 32 degrees in London at the moment, right? And, you know, you've spent some money buying a fan and I've bought some, you know, I've spent some money doing what I've done. And that's the power of money is that when something happens, you can, you can solve it, you can fix it, you can support a friend in need, you can leave a bad relationship, you can quit a job that you hate. If you're spending on buying stuff, then are you using money in the most efficient, effective way? But nobody talks about money that way. We think about money in terms of buying stuff. And, and education is so much about attitude, much more than it is about maths. People always go, I'm not good at maths, I'm not good with money. And it's like, the two things are not related literally at all. It's got nothing to do with anything. So it's a complicated story as always, but I do believe we can give people the power over their choice by giving them the power over their money. So there is no silver bullet, but as much as anything can be, this is it.
and I think that's a huge part of it as well, right? And I mean, I, I, and as we talked about, personal experience is a huge part of how you frame these these conversations. And I was dreadful with money at university, you know, as a as a kid, and I just spent it on stuff, and that followed through to probably my mid twenties, and it becomes quite hard to catch up a little bit, you know, as you start maybe earning a bit more money in your thirties, you're not unfortunately doing often what you could be doing, which is being secure, supporting your family, et cetera. You're kind of making up for those mistakes. So again, maybe a slightly philosophical question, but is there a point, you know, at which someone goes, this is too late or this is too early, or at what point do we say to people, this is when you need to start thinking about this stuff because it can have, Maybe not catastrophic in some instances, but just certainly um, negative impacts on people's abilities for the future. Yeah, well, you, you just slow down your own progress, right? Because we'd like to think, and I'm hopeful, that most people don't end up in catastrophic trouble. And the truth is, if you are in catastrophic trouble, that is when you have, you know, things like being able to discharge your debts and, you know, declaring bankruptcy. And so, in a sense, that bit's kind of taken care. It's not great. You should avoid it. But <laughs> that bit taken care of. I mean, when should you start thinking about it? You should start thinking about money like young. Like that's what pocket money is for, right? Which doesn't mean you need to be saving and trading. I'm very lucky. I did my first trade at 15 because my mother, which is the reason, you know, the reason I have my money views. My mom grew up in a family that was on a very financially precarious because her dad died very young when my mom was very young and hadn't signed life insurance papers. And so the family's finances were, were kind of upended. And so my mom has always been, she was 11 at the time. She's always been very conscious of money because there wasn't any. Um, and, and she's an accountant. And, you know, we, you know I, I learned stock trading with her and purchased my first stock at 15. Um, the ideal thing if you're a student is try and avoid catastrophic debt. Like mm-hmm. don't take payday loans. Don't get into yeah. too much buy now, pay later trouble, like things like that. But you should really start to seriously think about your financial future, whatever that looks like the second you get your first paycheck. Um, ideally earlier. But if you are in your early mid-20s, you've got 40, 50 years until retirement. You don't even need to be putting a lot. I mean, the rule of thumb is you put in half your age. So if you start when you're 20 and you're saving 10% of your income, and if you're, again, if you're lucky enough to be earning decent money and you've got, you know, um, you've got the the, um, the excess, but if you wait until you're 50 or 60 to try and save for retirement, that may well be too late. I mean, it's hard to catch up retirement savings in 10 years. So the younger you are, the earlier you start, put a tiny bit away, get comfortable, get in the habit, up how much it is every couple of months. And next thing you know, you've got thousands of pounds in a house deposit. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's that simple, but. It, um, but it is, but, it, but equally, yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges, and I don't know how many 18 to 20 year olds we have listened to the podcast, but you know, maybe we'll start firing out some TikToks of it and that's going to go, well, I sound so old right now. Um, <laughs> you do. It's so old. <laughs> But how do you incentivize that? Because I, I remember vividly someone saying that exact thing to me when I was, I think, 23, and I got my first decent paycheck, and they were like, oh, it's half you. And I remember doing the maths and being like, well, that's suddenly, you know, a couple of hundred pounds a month or whatever. And I was like, oh, that's not going to happen because I'm, I still want to go out tonight. I still yeah. want to do X and Y. Like, how do, you, how do you think we can start making this real for people without it just being old people telling young people what to do with their money? Because that... When you boil it down, that's sometimes what it feels like for people. Oh, a hundred percent. And if you think about all the controversy around avocado toast, and I love my avocado toast, right? Oh. So I'm very pro avo toast. I mean, I'm Australian, right? So I grew up on avo toast. <laughs> um, the 
the problem wasn't what the guy said. The problem was that he's a multimillionaire property investor in his 50s, right? Like that was the problem. Because actually the truth is avocado toast, if you have it every single week and you're spending 15 quid every single week, actually that money could be could be put to better things. Like he's not wrong, but the vehicle through which yeah. the message came was was wrong. And it, you're much better off having a 20 year old saying it. The the best thing to do and the best way to do it is to let technology do the heavy lifting. Set up a standing order for payday. I'm always telling people if you get paid on the 20th of the month, set up the standing order for the 20th of the month. So when your salary lands, a portion of it automatically goes into your savings account automatically. And if you do that, you won't notice the money. And I'm always saying to students, I do a lot of presentations. Oh, I used to before COVID. Now I do a lot of them on Zoom. Rishi Sunak doesn't wait for you to pay your tax when you have spare money. He takes it out of your paycheck before you get your paycheck because he knows that's the only time that you actually have money is the moment you get your paycheck. Why should Rishi Sunak be taking your money before you take your money? So we all say, I'll save what's left at the end of the month. Rishi Sunak doesn't do that. He takes it at the start of the month because that's when there's money. So use the technology to do the heavy lifting. Set up a standing order, a direct debit, straight out of your account into an ISA. I mean, it's all, it feels like all such straightforward little steps. Set up an ISA so you don't pay tax on it. Set up a standing order so that at the start, at the payday, that money goes straight into the account. Every six months, increase how much it is by 10%, 20%, 30%. Because you won't notice it because you never had it to begin with. You never had it. So the money was never in your hands. And then suddenly at the end of the year, it turns out that you've got 500, 1,000, 5,000 pounds saved up, depending on how lucky you are with your, with your income. Um, and, and you don't remember stashing that money away because you never had it. And that's the only way to do it. Can you encourage a 20-year-old who'd rather blow it all on Ibiza holiday? Like, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, and it's not for me to tell people what to do with their life. But if you want a deposit, if you want to live the life that you want to live, you can't have everything. And that is true and always has been. So there's an element of sacrifice in everything, right? Absolutely. And that, that's a, a life lesson I think we learned quite early. But interesting, something you've said there that kind of brings us slightly back full circle is that, you know, we've seen this, I mean, it's the, the most boring phrase of all time, but fintech has obviously exploded over the last yeah. five to 10 years. Yeah. And the use cases for what people are doing with technology at the moment are becoming incredibly interesting. And I've been privileged enough to work with, you know, the, the likes of Chip, uh, Moneybox, Plum, all these, you know, all these um, organizations who ostensibly make saving a lot easier, right? By, you know, micro roundups, micro donations, uh, all of these things, you know, salary top ups. Conversely, a lot of them now are offering the opportunity to invest or to, you know, to, to stock trade. What, what's your view on these, you know, I guess, kind of gamified is one of the words that you used, apps that, that try and, I don't know, bring these um, old ways of thinking in terms of investment and, and trading to a younger audience? You know, yeah. do, they, do you think overall a force for good? Oh, overall net positive, without, without a question. Um, I, I have got... Um, specific concerns about specific features that specific companies are doing. So I'm going to pick on Robinhood because they're not a UK player. Um, But Robinhood gamifies trading, which is fine, except that actually trading itself is, is a, is a faster way of losing money than investing. Right. We can kind of get into that Mm -hmm. if you want, but if, if what you're doing is giving people that shot of dopamine, which we all know is what happens when you gamify stuff, every time somebody makes a trade, they're going to make more trades. Making more trades is not necessarily a good strategic 
kind of way of treating your money. So net positive, absolutely. Anything that helps people to save more, be more thoughtful with their money, certainly investing. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of investing. It remains, apart from setting up a business which is successful and businesses have a 95% failure rate. So, you know, it is still the best way of accumulating personal wealth for the future, investing. But without the education, you're, you're playing in the dark. I mean, the number of scams that are happening at the moment, right, are huge because people are using, you know, certain tools without understanding how they work. So net positive 100% these apps, but without education, um, it's, it's great, but it's without context. And context really is king when it comes to people's money because, you know, how long do you save if you've got debt? If you've got a credit card, yeah. should you be saving more, should be paying it off. If you've got in, if you've got money in cryptocurrencies and crypto drops by 7% like it has today or whatever it is, should you hold on to it? Should you put more money in? And all of that comes from education. So the action itself can be made faster, better, simpler, have, you know, the little ta-da kind of yeah. stuff happening. But how to make decisions, that's the piece that only education can really help with unless you get a personal advisor and if you're getting a if you're getting a personal advisor then chances are money's not an issue yeah. <laughs> so sort of look at taking that future facing view now and we've kind of brought ourselves back into to today with you know the likes of the the, the apps and the companies that we've mm. spoken about black bullion you know my son is one year old he you know if he doesn't become a professional rugby player golfer footballer delete as a, a applicable and um, you know he, he may well want to go off to university in you yeah. know, 18 years time this may be asking you to get your crystal ball out but what do you think the world looks like for patrick as he's kind of stepping off to uh, Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, de delete as applicable, um, you know, wherever he may be going. What do you think that looks like for people in terms of one technology and around this subject, but also around education? Education is such a fascinating space. It is the second largest sector in the world behind only healthcare. FinTech is a tiny player compared to the healthcare and the education systems, which is absolutely fascinating because it's certainly not the money is certainly not going into education. It is now into healthcare, but but education is is has not changed in a hundred years. We went from a blackboard to a whiteboard, but that was really all the change that kind of happened. And then it's made you know a hundred years worth of changes in in twelve months because of COVID, and that's been really fascinating to watch the digitization of education. But at the end of the day, even now we have a sage on stage, except that now they're on Zoom or Teams. Yeah. Uh, but there's nonetheless a sage on stage who is delivering a lesson to a bunch of kids. I mean, that's, you know, so, so really has anything really changed? I don't think it's changed that much. I think the change is coming. I think by the time your, your son is ready to go, if he doesn't become a football player and, you know, let's all hope he becomes a football player and makes his money <laughs> proud. Um, but, but the question is really, and I'm a huge fan of university. I'm a university graduate. I, I'm the third generation in my family to go to university. And we work with universities, so I certainly don't want to, you know, be, be downplaying the importance of university. That said, it is not the only way to learn. And what we're starting to see is people having to upskill all the time. And is university going to be the ideal way? If you had to upskill and develop your data, you know, data analysis skills, which, you know, is not out mm -hmm. of the question, are you going to spend three years doing a degree at Durham? Mm -hmm. Probably not. You're more likely to do a six-week boot camp from Google, pay them a thousand pounds for it, rather than paying sixty thousand pounds to do another three-year degree, which by the time you graduate will already be out of date. So I think we're going to see a lot more 
I hope we're going to see a lot more collaboration between industry and the sector. I think mm-hmm. we're I'm really hoping we see shorter degrees. I think three years is a great, um, is, is historically has been a great length if you want to be independent um, and you want to learn how to be independent, I think we can achieve the same thing in two years than we can in three. Um, and because of the precariousness and the ever-changing workplace and because of the costs, I think that that would be hugely beneficial to students. I think we're going to start seeing that. Apprenticeships are exploding. They're no longer just, quote, unquote, the plumbers and the hairdressers. You can get an apprenticeship now at Google, at Goldman Sachs. I mean, that world is changing. Education is going to have to change because there's a lot of players like us who are coming in and saying, actually, this is no longer perhaps the most fit for purpose that it could or should be. Why are we still using fax machines? Like, why is education still using fax machines? And that, in a way, is, is kind of indicative of the, of the whole sector. Things are moving, but they're not moving as fast as industry. And at the end of the day, people who come out of university and graduate go into the so-called real world. And it's a strong argument at the moment that they're not prepared for that real world. And that real world, as you and I know, is changing much, much faster. Like the velocity of change is, is rapid and we're not necessarily preparing people for that. So your kid is in for an interesting, an interesting 18 years, an interesting 18 years. I can well imagine. I, I can well imagine. So look, sort of starting to wrap up a little bit. I know that, um, you know, Black Bullion do a lot of amazing work in terms of research as well. Uh, and in terms of going out, as you say, talk, talking to students. Again, I was going to say children there, but they're not, you know, they're young adults. They're people they're that adults. are making their way in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and looking at how money really ties in with the rest of their life, you know, mm. particularly in the mental health side of things yeah. and, and how that well-being impacts them. You know, from the recent research you've done, are there a couple of snippets that you'd like to bring out that you think would be super interesting to to sort of take us out with? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, the tie-up between money and mental health is actually quite new. The report that we've put out is one of the first reports about it, which is fascinating for a million different reasons. I think what we need to start doing, and also we need to bear in mind that students are not all all young adults. The, the, the demographics of students is also changing. There's a lot more, you know, mature age students coming in. We have a much more diverse student body. And that's part of the reason why we have to think of students as holistic beings rather than, you know, an academic side and a money side and a mental health side and the social life. Actually, students are holistic just like we are, and we need to address them holistically. And what's been worrying me for a long time is that we talk about mental health without talking about money. And you and I both know that if you're stressed at home, chances are money is playing a part in that. It's either your relationship or it's your money. Those are the two biggest triggers for, for, you know, for anxiety and for stress. And so we have to address them together. People with mental health challenges often have a financial challenge behind that or very, very often that'll be behind it. People with money problems will often develop mental health problems. So we need to bring them together. Students, uh, students will, will um, say that they suffer from kind of anxiety and mental health distress. 75% of students will say that they're facing that. The most shocking statistics for me was how that plays into optimism for the future, which I believe is the most important characteristic of, of all. And so well over half, half of the students that were interviewed for this survey said that they, they're not optimistic about the future. It brings in feelings of loneliness, of isolation. One in four young people says they don't have a single friend. Wow. I mean, how is that not just the most devastating thing you've oh, ever heard? Oh, and that's long before you get into self-harm and you get into suicide and you get into the number of young people who are on OnlyFans, which has skyrocketed. Now, I'm all for female empowerment. I'm not putting down OnlyFans. Do what you want to do. Um, but we can't, we can't discount the fact that these things have major implications for the future when you're going for a job interview and somebody Googles your name 
which hint people, um, all employers do, if your OnlyFans, you know, page pops up, um, that could certainly impact on, on any job. So we have to keep talking about money and mental health. We can't be talking about mental health only, and we shouldn't be talking about money only. The two of them are really locked in. And that is very much part of what we are trying to encourage people to think about. Think about students as a whole being. How has COVID impacted their academics, their mental, their financial, and how do we help them with all of those things? And isolation, we have not begun to see the mental health issues of COVID and the financial crisis is coming five minutes after that. So we'll start to wrap the health crisis, the mental health crisis will kick in, the financial crisis will kick in. Do we have a population that is prepared to deal with those three things? And I would argue not so much. And that's something we have to we have to face up to. And I think that's one of the things that's always impressed me and sort of blown me away a little bit about working with you and, uh, and the Black Bullion team is, you know, not only the passion and the obsession that goes, goes into it, but also that holistic nature of there's no point building one thing if we're not tackling another here, you know, and one of the things that obviously, you know, you're doing in terms of, well, we build the education piece, but what we need to do is make sure that the higher education facilities are up to scratch with their, their processes, because yeah. otherwise... There's no point in saying, brilliant, we can deliver hardship loans if they're still going to take eight weeks and be in brown paper envelopes. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And it's even, it's it's simple things like that. And that's where it's crazy. So, you know, there are disability funds that are available for people who struggle with various disabilities. And the forms that these universities had were not accessible. So if you were reading a screen, if you use a screen reader, you were not able to fill out these forms for disability funding. And that's not the fault of the university. It's certainly not the fault of student services who are administering it. It's simply that technology in a lot of ways has not been prioritized by the education sector in the way that it has other sectors. And COVID has reprioritized a lot of these things where people have gone, well, we no longer have a choice but to bring the stuff up to the 21st century because IT departments have historically not had their focus there because they haven't had to. So yes, we're tackling the education piece, but also a lot of backend stuff, which obviously has been fun working with you guys on. Um, but there is a long way, there is a long way to go because as FinTech develops faster, we have more available innovation to plug in and embed in a, in a variety of different points. And that's, that's the hope. Be where people are. Don't try and get them to find a fax machine. I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> like a fax machine? Seriously. Probably our, our, our Nokia 6210s are probably still sat next to that fax machine. And so look, for people who, who want to follow the Black Bullion journey, who want to see what you're doing, you know, um, what's the best way for people to, to find out a little bit more about what you're doing to get in touch if they've got any questions? Where can they yeah. find you? So the best, the best place, the most fun place to follow us is actually on Instagram. We, we're running, we run every month a campaign called Money Confessions to kind of circle back to one of the first points that you were making about stigma and, and kind of, you know, fear of addressing some of these questions. So on Instagram, we run these uh, Money Confessions things where people type in, you know, that they didn't understand, you know, what a payday loan was or whatever. And it's really interesting to see you are never alone um, there's always a million other people dealing with exactly the same problems. So certainly Instagram um, at Black Bullion and of course BlackBullion.com. Um, if you kind of want to go down the website route, that's that's where we are. So um, do do check us out. And if anybody wanted to reach out or ask any questions or get in touch, please feel free. We're we're, we're very friendly people by and large. When we're caffeinated, we're very friendly. And we'll add the fax number on at the end as well, just so as those uh, universities can get in touch via fax. Don't laugh. Somebody will send us a fax and it'll be like, <laughs> blow our mind um but perhaps the, the you can find the mental health report as well there's a link to that on the instagram as well and it is a really interesting i mean it's a 25 page report but it is a really interesting report amazing 
Well, look, Vivi, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure um, speaking with you and for sharing the insight as well. And, and the passion comes through just so strongly for such a for something that just needs to be changed. So well, always a thank pleasure. You. It's a pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me. And you guys keep uh, keep innovating so that the rest of us can, uh, can use that and do great things. So uh, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. No worries. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at CurrencyCloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.